When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 44 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. If you robbed a bank, how much do you think you would get? What would you spend the money on? How much money is a life worth? Angela Mary Willis-Croft still lived at home in a modest bungalow with her parents Bill and Julie and her sister Sally, on Newlands Way in Hook, which forms part of the Royal Borough of Kingston-upon-Thames in south-west London. Her older sister had already married and left their devout Roman Catholic home. Angela began working at 16. She found a position as a bank teller for Barclays Bank in Upper Ham Road near Richmond, around five and a half miles north from where she lived. After four years, she had settled into her job, knew the staff and her routine well. Outside of work, she loved to play hockey and was good at it. Angela was chosen to be part of the Barclays hockey team. They were due to play an away game on a weekend trip to Jersey. It was obvious she was looking forward to travelling. She had laid out her hockey kit ready, her clothes were washed and packed, and it was only Wednesday. That day, November 10th, 1976, seemed like an unremarkable morning. Angela had not long passed her driving test, 
she still had learner plates on her Ford Cortina car. She agreed to give her father a lift to the train station on the way to work. After he got out of the car, he gently cautioned his daughter, Watch out, it's skiddy. He looked on as the car pulled away from the curb in the pouring rain. Angela started work serving on the tills. Another member of staff was nearby, but a few counters down. Meanwhile, a man parked his car close to the bank, got out and emptied a large rectangular plastic bag full of leaves that had been left on the high street. He then walked into the bank. He approached the desk, wearing blue jeans and a blue three-quarter length Mac with dark sunglasses, strange for November. Customers were queuing at the first desk, so he made a beeline for the counter at the far end of the bank where Angela was working. It was 12.30pm, lunchtime, so it was not unusual to get a flurry of customers in a hurry who wanted to pay bills or withdraw money and get back to work on time. But there was something different about this individual. As he approached the desk, his appearance seemed strange. The dark mop of hair on his head didn't look like his own. It appeared as though it was made from nylon, like a doll's hair. His skin looked peculiar, the tone uneven and unnatural with patches of pale skin amongst a much darker skin tone. Under his arm, he had something wrapped in a yellow material along with some sort of plastic sheeting. As he got to the counter with Angela Wooliscroft behind it, it was clear what he was hiding under the material and plastic was a sawn-off shotgun. He demanded money. Angela was complying, collecting cash and putting it in the tray, considering whether or not to press the alarm button close by. The shotgun was pressed up against the partition glass directly in front of Angela. The gunman pulled the trigger and shattered glass went everywhere. The bullet had passed through the protective screen which was half an inch thick and struck Angela in the neck. Doreen Doggett realised what was happening and caught a glimpse of the shooter before she dived to the floor. Another cashier raised the alarm as the killer slowly walked out of the building. Paramedics promptly arrived but the bullet that struck Angela had hit a major artery. She lost her life in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. The bank robber turned murderer fled the scene with a grand total of £2,500. He exited the building calmly blending in with passing pedestrians until he got into the car he had parked nearby. The vehicle was stolen from a multi-storey car park that belonged to a department store called Bentles, located a few miles away. He drove the car back to where it had been parked, but left the vehicle in a different bay from where it was previously. The owner came back unaware that her car had just been stolen and used in a bank robbery and murder. The gunman got back into his car, which suddenly broke down on the M3 motorway 
as he made his way back home. Stranded, he walked to a phone box and called the police and asked if they could contact the RAC rescue service for him. Looking to help, they did, and after he had his car fixed, the gunman paid the mechanic with money he had just stolen from the bank. Later that day, the Willis-Croft family were informed of Angela's death. Her mother, in ill health with a heart condition, had a doctor on standby when they were told of the tragic news. An inquest into Angela Willis-Croft's death was opened in mid-November at Hammersmith in London. Coroner Dr John Burton said he was overwhelmed by an emotion of almost unbelievable intensity after seeing the widespread damage caused to the young woman's neck and face. Dr Burton told the inquest, The bank raid was clearly planned by a person who thought it was a clever thing to do, and so he put it into practice, but he made one mistake. Whoever it was could not have appreciated the utter revulsion that people in this country would feel at what he did. The inquest was adjourned as the investigation was ongoing. Angela Willis-Croft's funeral was held 19 days after her death. Barclays Bank closed the Upper Ham branch for the day as a mark of respect to the employee who had lost her life before her time. Angela's headstone at her graveside reads, In memory of our loving sister and daughter, Angela Mary Willis-Croft. God gave us strength to bear it and courage to fight the blow. What it has meant to lose you, God alone will ever know. Angela's hockey teammates came from all over London to meet in Ealing to pay their respects to their friend and teammate a week after her murder. Police officers from Scotland Yard took this opportunity to interview the group but no useful information was gathered. Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Saul leading the investigation also spoke to the media. He described the gunman's actions as a cold, callous, calculated killing. The description of the suspect provided by witnesses was fairly generic. In his mid-twenties, height approximately five foot eight, dark hair with a slim build. His face looked gaunt with hollow cheeks. From a distance, perhaps, his disguise had seemed more convincing. It was added to the description. This included tan skin, well-styled black hair with a parting. Detectives did not have enough information to create an e-fit. The risk being that if police released such a broad image, the telephone line set up at Richmond Police Station specifically for the case would be overrun with callers. However, police did issue a more specific description of the car, which the killer had parked almost directly outside the bank. 
a two-tone light-coloured Vauxhall, possibly a Victor model with a C registration number. Police did point out the car was probably not owned by the perpetrator. In Twickenham the week before, there had been another bank robbery with a Vauxhall model of car used as a getaway vehicle, but nothing besides the make of the car made the police think there was a link between the two crimes. DCS Sewell was interested in talking to customers who visited the bank that day, particularly around lunchtime. Investigators were also busy stopping cars at roadblocks to ask if the drivers had seen anything suspicious, and they went door-to-door to to over 5,000 homes to try and gather some understanding of where the perpetrator might have been. There was a coincidental bonus in doing this as police managed to gain a confession from another armed robber and a further 64 petty criminals were flushed out in the process. What the police did know was the perpetrator, in his haste, had left two objects at the scene. The yellow material he carried turned out to be a woman's rain mac. The garment was produced for Marks and Spencer, who at the time specialised in family clothing. The label read it was a size 16, 44 inches in length. In one of the pockets was a paper ticket for a winemaking competition, signed with the name Graham, along with a small shopping list written in blue biro. The second thing left behind at the scene was the piece of plastic that the gunman had utilised to hide the weapon. On inspection, it was a garden sack used to store fertiliser. The yellow rain mac had been taken from the car the gunman had stolen, and after a public appeal, a relative of the owner recognised the items in the newspaper. Miss Marshall was informed about the appeal by her younger brother Graham when details of his name on the receipt and a model of car were released. He had previously borrowed the yellow rain mac. Graham's sister knew that her yellow mac and a pair of sunglasses had been taken from her vehicle and soon realised that her car, an Austin A40 model, was used as the killer's transportation while she was out shopping. Recalling that she had left one of the doors unlocked by accident, the owner of the car had at first dismissed the theft of the items as she had been careless and thought her car had been moved by a parking attendant. She was bemused by the mud that streaked the back of the car. In turn, the police were interested in making contact with the up to 700 shoppers and staff that parked in the car park on that day. Appealing to the public asking if they had seen the gunman, a police spokesperson said, Someone might remember him trying outdoor handles or speeding into the car park after the raid. The image of the plastic fertiliser bag in the newspaper appeal also bore fruit. A gardener in Richmond recognised it as something he had left at the side of the road near Barclays Bank, filled with leaves that he had gathered that day. During their examination of the shotgun pellets, a ballistics expert determined that the weapon used was a 12-bore shotgun and due to the weight of the bullet fragments, they understood the size to be number 7 game or trap shot. Chemical analysis proved it to be the former, 
which was a lighter bullet used in bird shooting. During the experiments, experts also discovered that when that type of weapon was fired within a few inches of partition glass, shards would have covered the gunman's clothing. These shards were found in Miss Marshall's car. With the investigation ongoing, the focus shifted towards the bank itself as questions were asked as to why they did not have bulletproof glass installed, separating the tellers from the customers. The Barclays spokesperson replied saying, We don't want our banks to become a fortress. Furthermore, if we did this, there could be a chance that bullets could spray all over innocent customers. To find the killer, Barclays Bank put up a substantial financial reward, £50,000, which is equal to about £323,000 in today's money. This would usually be paid upon conviction. However, Barclays were offering to pay the money after the arrest of a suspect. Upwards of 30,000 people called the hotline in the hope of getting the reward and maybe solving the murder. It was believed that amongst those calls was a vital clue. On November 28th, 18 days after the murder, there were dawn raids off the back of what DCS Sewell said was some, quote, underworld information. In numerous houses spread across Surrey and London, 11 men and one woman were arrested and taken to various police stations for questioning in connection with the bank robbery and murder. Despite their initial optimism, detectives gradually released the 12 suspects over the next few days, though some of them received charges for theft unrelated to the Angela Wooliscroft case. The investigation continued, and in what seemed like an unrelated incident, police were alerted to a robbery at a Basingstoke garage. A description of the vehicle was provided to local officers, who spotted a car driving past at high speed shortly after the call. Where he was being followed, the driver, Michael Hart, accelerated, and the police quickly gave chase. During the pursuit, Hart pulled over onto some open ground, jumped from the car, and escaped on foot. Though officers did not catch up with him, They now had his car. They knew Hart was on bail for housebreaking. He'd even been questioned by police in relation to the murder, but he had an alibi. He claimed he was subject to police bail at the time and had reported to a police station multiple times on the day Angela Wooliscroft was murdered. However, in the boot of his vehicle, officers found some crucial evidence. A pistol and almost a hundred rounds of ammunition. This led to a search of his home. In a box, officers discovered 19 shotgun cartridges. Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Sewell looked at the shells, and they were different to the make that was fired at the bank. Those in Hart's home bore the markings number seven trap shot and the shell found at the scene was marked with number seven game shot. 
After thoroughly examining the shells, the officer had a gut feeling that they may have been mislabeled during production, so DCS Sewell called the factory where the bullets were made. Although this possibility was very unlikely, his hunch paid off. The pack of shells was in fact an anomaly. It had been mislabeled. Further forensic testing would later show that they were a match to the shell found at the scene of the crime. It turns out that Hart had stolen the bullets and a number of other weapons from a gun dealer in Reading just under a week before Angela Willis-Croft was murdered. Tracking down Michael Hart wasn't easy, as people in his social circle wouldn't talk to the police. His house was subject to surveillance, and even a police helicopter was deployed, however without much luck. He evaded capture until the new year, when, at the end of January, police discovered that he had been working at a petrol station in Hanslow. Officers monitored the forecourt, and when Michael Hart went to collect his wages, he was arrested and taken into custody. Appearing before Richmond Magistrates Court on January 28, 1977, Hart was charged with the murder of Angela Willis-Croft. While in police custody, Michael Hart attempted to hang himself in his cell. A prison official managed to pull Hart down in time to save his life. During a police interrogation... Hart was adamant that he did not kill Angela, but a few days later, while he was in an interview room with his wife, he confessed as police officers watched on. He said to her, I did shoot the girl, but it was an accident. I am really sorry about all the publicity. I done it, love. I will tell you all about it. In a later interview with police, Hart would go on to say, I asked the girl for money and banged the gun against the glass to make the girl hurry up. She seemed to be ages. She was looking to the right, and the gun went off as soon as she came up. I hoped to break the glass. The gun went off and the girl raised her head. She screamed. I had no intention of killing anyone. It just went off, and I was flabbergasted. I knew I hit the girl because she screamed. I just hoped she was wounded. When I came back to my senses, I realised there was money in the tray. I picked it up, walked out and then back to the car. With Hart's confession and the shell casings found at his home, the police now had enough evidence for the CPS to mount a prosecution. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. 39 year old Michael George Hart lived in Basingstoke with his wife Maureen and three children. He had a checkered past. But to the outside world, it appeared like Hart was simply down on his luck. He said he had had to quit his painting and decorating job in August due to a back injury, and various run-ins with the law followed. After the robbery, Hart was not shy flaunting the money he had stolen. He purchased a car worth £1,300 in cash. The year before he killed Angela Willis-Croft, Michael Hart had appeared in court following a charge of breaking and entering. He was granted bail, only to go on to commit further crimes. Bail was granted every time, despite the frustrations of police. One of the officers working on the Angela Willis-Croft case, Detective Sergeant Derek Luke, explained... I spelled out to the magistrates that there were other serious charges, that Hart had a record, and that he was wanted by Paris police in connection with the stabbing of a cabbie and shots fired at five policemen. Interpol had informed British police about Hart's crimes abroad and was seeking extradition. Still, at his fifth court appearance that year, 
Unfortunately, DS Luke was not in court and no mention of the incident was made, though it is believed that the information was provided to the magistrate. Michael Hart's lawyer succeeded in getting bail for their client and Hart was free to continue his crime spree which sadly included going to a branch of Barclays Bank on Upper Ham Road and killing Angela Woolliscroft six days later. At the time, Hart had been required to report to the police station twice a day as he was out on bail. Frustrated about the lack of action taken to keep Michael Hart behind bars, Angela Woolliscroft's father, Bill, said, If this man had not been let out on bail, our daughter would still be alive today. There is obviously a need for the whole system to be tightened up. Late October 1977, Michael Hart's trial began at the Old Bailey. He pleaded not guilty to murder, but he offered a plea for the lesser charge of manslaughter, which was rejected by the Crown. Hart claimed he pulled the trigger by accident. Michael Corkery QC Prosecuting described the events of the year before as a terrible story of a young girl of 20 a bank clerk, blasted at point-blank range by a shotgun. Angela Woolliscroft's body was found to have shotgun pellets scattered in her chest and numerous glass shards from the power of the shot were lodged inside her body. Jurors heard about Hart's suicide attempt after he confessed to police and the dramatic incident in Paris. His interviews with detectives were read to the court along with the prosecution's theory that Hart pulled the trigger because Angela Woolliscroft was loading the money into the tray too slowly. The RAC mechanic who fixed Hart's car when it broke down after the robbery told the court that the defendant seemed calm and composed. Michael Hart said he had taken tranquilizer pills on the day of the robbery, making his demeanour appear calm as he fled the bank. Hart claimed pulling the trigger of the gun and killing Angela Woolliscroft was an accident, though he admitted to cocking the weapon before he entered the bank. Testing completed by an expert disputed Hart's claim of firing the gun accidentally when it was found out that it would need more than six pounds of pressure on the trigger to fire. A crucial piece of evidence at the trial was the damaged partition glass. The portion with a hole from the gunshot blast and its surrounding had been framed, so the jury could examine the glass. The evidence was damning, because tiny shards matching the screen were found on some of Michael Hart's clothing, which he was wearing that day. The gun used in the robbery had been dumped in the River Thames, and Hart burned the pieces of the disguise in his back garden. This included the nylon wig the Mac and his gloves. His garden was also the burial site for the sawn-off pieces from the shotgun. Neighbours confirmed seeing the fire, but remnants of the wig which he purchased from Woolworths, a piece of merchandise from a Halloween sale, miraculously survived the flames and was used as evidence by the police. 
The darkening of Hart's skin with a deep foundation was to try and convince any witnesses and the police that they were looking for a black man. Hart squirreled away the money he got from the robbery in a hiding place in his garage. During the spate of robberies and break-ins he had previously committed in a short space of time, Hart stole a total of £15,000. With the stolen money he planned to disappear abroad and start a new life anonymously, away from any charges for the parish shootout. But now he was facing a far more severe charge for the crime of murder. When Michael Hart took the stand, he told the court his version of what happened that day. He said, As I approached the till, I uncovered the muzzle of the gun. I levelled it to the counter. I had intended saying, Give me some money. I never finished the sentence, because I imagine the girl saw the gun and left her position. She appeared to bend down to her right and was completely out of my view. It seemed like a long time. I don't know how long, but I got nervous. I was trembling and kept looking over my shoulder to the door where I came in. Although I could not see the girls, I could hear the sound of paper rustling. I became impatient and I thrust the gun forward at the glass partition quite hard. I intended to say hurry up to draw the girls' attention to the fact that I was in a hurry, but in fact, I didn't get the words out. After the first syllable, the gun went off. My left hand was on the muzzle of the shotgun. I did not see the girl. I did not know what I had done. I thought I might have hit her because I heard a muffled scream. Another theory behind why Angela was killed was posed to the court. It was claimed that as she saw Michael Hart close up at the counter she could see through his poor disguise, so he felt that he had no other option than to shoot her. Testifying about the incident and what she saw, Angela's co-worker Doreen Doggett told the court, She seemed to slide down to the floor. Then I saw a man standing on the other side of the counter close to the partition which was shattered. I saw the hole in the glass and realised it was a gun and I dropped to the floor opposite my desk. Following the closing arguments and the judge's summary of the case, the jury reached a decision. Michael Hart's body sagged and slumped when he realised he would be facing a life sentence for the murder of Angela Willis-Croft. Hart was found guilty by a majority 11-1 to verdict. The judge, Mr Justice Melford Stevenson, wanted to give praise to the officers who brought Hart to justice. He told them, I want to put on record the debt which the community owes to the police. It is something that cannot be overstated. I hope that it will be remembered by all those whose duty it is to consider these matters. Michael Hart was sentenced on Wednesday, November 3rd, 1977. Addressing the defendant, the judge told Hart, I think you are a very dangerous criminal and the public should be protected from you for a very long time. 
along with 21 other offences, the judge recommended that for the murder of Angela Woolliscroft, Michael Hart should be incarcerated for at least 25 years. Since Hart was in prison, any extradition order for the attempted murders in Paris would have to happen after his sentence in England was completed. If the authorities in France wished to proceed with a conviction, it would have to go ahead two and a half decades later. Bill Willis-Croft spoke to reporters the day after Michael Hart's conviction. Discussing Hart's sentence, he said, That verdict did not matter to me because I know that man was guilty of taking my child away. In my thoughts, there will always be that guilt. Thank God he did a quick job on her, and she did not suffer for long. Nevertheless, I'd rather he killed me than her. I don't believe in capital punishment, but I hope this man-heart suffers for the rest of his life. Angela's mother Julie felt like the punishment for her daughter's killer was not enough. She said, It should be longer. He should suffer forever. During his crime spree, Michael Hart had a criminal accomplice, but she was only involved in cashing bad checks from the checkbooks Hart had stolen. Hart's teenage girlfriend Sharon Stacy of Shirley in Southampton was sentenced to three years in prison for check fraud. Stacy, who was living at her grandmother's house when she met Hart, was at first offered a job as a secretary, then as a driver and a romance quickly followed. The pair often used fraudulent checks on their shopping trips. Following a guilty plea to charges of fraud, Mr Justice Stevenson told her, You have been a pretty bad young woman. Although I am not forgetting the influence which a very wicked man must have exerted upon you is something that has got to be recognised. Sharon Stacy, then 20, argued the sentence, and in April 1978, her appeal was heard. Lord Justice Shaw felt she was, quote, too good for Borstal. Borstals were a prison alternative for children, mainly teenagers. They were run by the prison service, with the goal to reform the residents. Sharon Stacy was free to go. After she was released, Stacy was interviewed and said, I wish to hell I had never met him. I was a fool, I know. Talking about the check fraud, Stacy continued, Art told me to go out and buy as much drink as I could, but at first I bought myself something pretty, a dress and an outfit for £200. He never mentioned the bank job to me. When the police told me, I couldn't believe them. The Home Office commenced an investigation to understand why Michael Hart was repeatedly awarded bail against the advice of police officers who were dealing with his crimes. 
More importantly, they wanted to find out why bail was given when he was facing charges for such severe offences, and why the standard procedure for letting magistrates know the criminal history of the accused had not been performed in Michael Hart's case. Hart had reported to the police station at 9.30am on the morning of the crime, though went on to commit a murder merely three hours later before returning and signing in again just before 6pm. DCS Jim Sewell, referring to the Paris incident and Michael Hart's other criminal activity, said, This information had been passed to the court. He was wanted for shooting at French police officers. This had been made clear, but somehow the killer of Angela Woolliscroft had been given bail. Sewell concluded his interview with reporters by saying, I don't know how this happened. It seems to be a matter for the court. The question why Michael Hart was released on bail numerous times has never been fully answered. Michael Hart claimed that the judge was biased during his court case. He appealed his sentence this was denied just under a year after his trial in October 1978. It has been reported that after Michael Hart was released from prison in November 2002, he gave talks at schools, speaking to children about the harsh reality of a life of crime. A full year after Angela Woolliscroft's murder, it was reported that Barclays Bank was still deciding what to do with the £50,000 reward money. A spokesperson said several people had laid claim to the reward, but the bank was still in talks about where and if it should be distributed. In March 1978, a disgruntled man Tony Pace from Basingstoke spoke to the Reading Evening Post newspaper. It appeared as if the bank had come to a decision regarding the funds. Pace had called the police on the appeal hotline days after Angela Woolliscroft was shot to tell them he suspected Michael Hart was the shooter. He wasn't the only one with this suspicion and a desire to claim the £50,000 reward money. Other members of the public rang naming Michael Hart amongst the tens of thousands of calls. For his information, Tony Pace was given £5,000, just a tenth of what he expected to receive. A Barclays Bank spokesperson said, We offered up a £50,000 reward and we fully appreciate the public-spirited attitude of Mr Pace. In consultation with the police, we considered rewards to Mr Pace and others. The spokesperson went on to explain there were another six people who would receive a portion of the reward, with half of the amount to be donated to police charities in appreciation for their hard work in the case. Tony Pace was disappointed by the amount he had received and felt that he had lost more for doing the right thing and coming forward. He claimed he received a threatening phone call at his home address when it was divulged he had called the hotline. Pace decided to move, so any possible reprisals could not be directed at him, his wife or his children. 
He also alleged that he lost his job as a lorry driver, as he had to make himself available for any court dates during Michael Hart's trial, though in the end he wasn't needed to testify in court. Speaking to a reporter for the Reading Evening Post, Pace said, I now consider it the worst day's work I have ever done. If I saw a man coming out of a bank tomorrow with money in his hands, I would not do anything. An MP, John Ryman, also questioned the way Barclays had planned to distribute the reward, fearing that it would be perceived as some sort of bribe. He wanted the Home Secretary to instruct the police to hand back the £25,000 to Barclays Bank. Ryman stated, While recognising the excellent work done by many police officers in this terrible murder case, why should a financial reward be given at all, when officers are simply discharging their normal duties? So where are we now? In June 2014, the Barclays Bank on Upper Ham Road where Angela Woolis Croft was shot closed its doors to make way for a Sainsbury's supermarket. The bank had housed a memorial plaque for Angela and a wooden bench dedicated to her was set outside. The font in gold letters on a dark wood plaque had been there for 38 years. It read, in fond memory of Angela Woolis Croft, who died the 10th of November 1976, a member of staff of this branch, who will always be remembered by her colleagues. In November 1977, almost a year after their daughter's murder, Bill and Julie Woolis Croft spoke to a reporter for the Daily Express newspaper. Their lives were shrouded in grief since Angela's death. Their bedroom and personal items had not been packed away, touched or moved since her murder. Angela's work name tag and a crucifix were placed on her bed. Her hockey kit was laid out like she was still going on the trip to Jersey she had been looking forward to. Her mother would dust and clean around her items, but it was still Angela's room. Her parents felt like they were not ready to use the room for anything else. Even her work bag was left unopened. Her mother didn't feel right going in it just yet. Speaking about her daughter, Julie Willis Croft said, She had reached the age where she was a friend. We were not just daughter and mother, but really great friends. She was a very loving and affectionate girl. She loved her work. She loved people, she loved hockey, and she loved her home. Angela had used some of her money to buy her parents' concert tickets to see the Carpenters. The event fell after her death, but Bill and Julie felt they should go. They said they got through the concert in a daze. Since Angela's death, Julie Willis-Croft said she had never known depression like it before. She had contemplated suicide to be with her daughter. An emotional Bill Willis-Croft spoke about Angela's personality. Angela brought happiness into our lives. 
She exuded happiness. She was all happiness. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. Information on this episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.